This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 35. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Billah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is God's word. We've been going into a a series called The Idols of the Heart, The theologian John Calvin once said that our hearts are idol factories. What that means is that our hearts are constantly looking for something in life to give us a sense of worth or meaning, something that's going to make us feel significant. And in in a large city like Philadelphia, that's why we're desperately seeking relationships and money and power or comfort or maybe a good reputation. And, And we've learned from the life of Abraham and and the life of Jacob, that just having a mere encounter with God is not sufficient to heal this inner emptiness. It's not sufficient to heal the uh, inner loneliness or the insecurity that we all have. In Genesis chapter 28, just one chapter prior, God came down and encountered Jacob. He enters into Jacob's life, but that doesn't immediately heal Jacob of all of his brokenness. And when you're a broken person, where do we often turn when we're in a dark place? We turn to the hope of finding Mr. Right. We turn to the hope of finding Mrs. Right. Our beauty, 
sex appeal. That's how we cope. That's how we deal with our inner emptiness, love, relationships. So we're going to begin this sermon really with uh, a background of the text because we have to understand the background. And then we're going to talk about some very fundamental lessons of sin and fundamental lessons about God's grace. But they're amazing lessons about sin and they're remarkable lessons of God's grace. You ready for this? Let's go. Um, first, we're going to go to the background. Let me bring you up to date. <clears throat> Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And God comes to Abraham and he says, look at the decay. Look at the violence that's in the world. I'm going to save the world through your family, a child that's going to be born from you. One of your descendants is going to be the ultimate redeemer of the world. And so Abraham, Isaac is born. After years and years of waiting, Isaac becomes that child of promise. But Isaac has two sons, and they're twins. So now you have a dilemma. There's a conundrum. They're twins. And while they're still in the womb, his mother, uh, their mother, she inquires, and she hears this prophecy about this, and what she hears is that the elder will serve the younger. The younger one will be the one that's blessed. Jacob is going to be the one that God would bless. God is going to use him to be that redeemer. But as they grew, the father, Isaac, favors Esau, the elder. And he favors him over Jacob. And so Jacob grows up really in the shadow of Esau, desperate for his father's love, bitter for his father's love. And so one day, what does he do? He dresses up as his brother. And he takes advantage of his father's old age. And he's going blind. And he tricks his father into giving him the blessing. He steals the blessing, essentially. And Esau's furious, so he vows to kill his brother, and as a result, Jacob leaves home. He runs away. He leaves home. And chapter 29 opens up with Jacob working at his uncle's land. He's working his uncle's land as a shepherd, and uh, that's where we see, and you know, Laban, his uncle, he realizes, Jacob, he's he's a good worker. Jacob works hard, and Jacob's got management potential, and so he could really be used to help expand Laban's business. And so he asks Jacob, what can I do? What can I do to keep you? Because you're good for this. You're good for this business. And Jacob responds, here's what I want. I want Rachel, your daughter. I want Rachel. And now, how does Jacob deal with his brokenness? You know, he's got a screwed up family. He's got a screwed up fortune. Where does he turn? He turns to love. He turns to relationships. He says, I know what I need to heal me. I know what I need to fix me. I need a wife. And so he says, I'm willing to work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, ah, Laban. Laban's a businessman. He's a shrewd businessman. He realizes at this point, Jacob is willing to do anything for his younger daughter. And so uh, he he says, I'm going to exploit Jacob. Laban's got two daughters, you see. And in verse 17, Leah, who's the elder, Leah's got weak eyes. That's what the text says. But Rachel is lovely in form and beautiful. The text doesn't say Leah has weak eyes, but Rachel has perfect vision. That's not what it says here. The text refers to Rachel's figure, Rachel's form, her beauty. And that means that there's probably something about Leah's eyes that really disfigured her, made her look ugly. But Rachel was sexually desirable. Rachel was beautiful. And so Laban figures... I need to marry off both daughters. It's customary to marry off the elder daughter first in this, in this custom. So how do I marry off both daughters? Laban realizes through Jacob, 
I can get wealthy and marry off both daughters. And so he agrees. Jacob uh, agrees to work for seven years. Uh, and uh, Jacob works seven years. It says, the text says, it only feels like a few days. Uh, and then he says, give me my wife. You know, as soon as that seven years is up. But Laban deceives Jacob. On their wedding night, everyone's drinking and it's late. And in those days, there's no electricity. And so it's dark. And Jacob's in bed and he's, he's you know, a lot to drink. And he's expecting Rachel to come to him, but it's Leah. The whole time, Leah is, is, is veiled. Leah takes his place. And he sleeps with Leah. And in verse 25, when morning came, behold, surprise, it was Leah. And so Jacob confronts Laban. And, but you see, he wanted Rachel so bad. He wanted Rachel so bad that he commits to another seven years. And he ends up marrying Rachel, and now you have Leah. Poor Leah. Leah's exploited. Leah's the rejected daughter disregarded by her father, now disregarded by her husband, and her heart is just broken. But Leah can have children. And so she says, this is the way I'm going to win Jacob over. I'm going to bear him children. I'm going to bear him sons. And so, verse 32, she bears Reuben. Reuben means, now I'm seen. Verse 33, she bears Simeon. Now I will be heard. Levi is born next. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now my husband will see me. Now my husband will hear me. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now my husband will love me. But it doesn't happen. And you get to the fourth child, and she names him Judah. Now I will praise the Lord. Lots of lessons here. Lessons about sin. Remarkable lessons about grace. First, we're going to learn these lessons about sin. The first lesson, very quick lessons, but we're going to run through them. There are many. First lesson about sin. Sin is a power. Sin enslaves. Look at Jacob, verse 18. He's just captivated by Rachel, completely smitten, taken by Rachel. And it's an inordinate love, a very inordinate love. How do you know that? When he negotiates this price with Laban, he says in verse 18, I'm willing to work seven years. I will work seven years for Rachel. Now, historical research has shown that at this time, in these ancient times, the normal amount that a man would pay to the family of a bride was around 30 or 40 shekels of silver. Less, definitely less than 50, no more than 50. Now, to kind of put that into perspective, the going rate for a typical shepherd in Jacob's time was about 10 shekels a year. So if you actually do the math, Jacob was, the going rate to earn your bride was about three to four, at most four years of labor. That was very typical. But what's Jacob doing? Jacob's out of his mind. He offers to work seven years. He makes an offer to Laban that Laban cannot refuse. What does that tell you? You can't control yourself. Sin means you can't control yourself. It's more than just one act. Oh, I sinned. It's more than just one act. Sin is a power, a captivating power. It controls you. It shapes you. It moves you. And when it does, it's going to work you. You're going to labor. It's going to corrode your soul, and then it's going to destroy you. That's sin. Jacob's just absolutely powerless to his desires. You're going to see this even further down. You don't just outgrow sin. You can't just stop sinning. Sin traps you. Sin owns you. The second lesson about sin is that it's a compulsion. Because it's a power, it's a compulsion. 
Jacob works seven years. But verse 20, what happens? Uh, it seemed like just a few days because of his love for, for Rachel. And when those seven years are up, what does Jacob say? Verse 21, he doesn't say, hey, let's come back to the table. Let's discuss this. We made this agreement. It's a contractual agreement. Verse 21, that's not what he says. He says, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. I'm going to put it in a bit more crass terms. Do I need to do this? Look at the compulsive language. He says, give me my wife. I want to have sex now. The compulsion. I mean, this, this language is completely out of the standard of any cultural propriety. We make fun of those things in movies today. But in those days, completely out of the standard of cultural propriety. Look at the boldness of Jacob. Look at the crassness of Jacob. He's basically saying, I'm done. I want Rachel. I want to have sex right now. He's addicted. He's rabid. He's blind with compulsion for Rachel. It's all he thought about for seven years. It's all he wanted for seven years. It's all he sees. It's all he wants right now. That's what an addiction is. It's the power has captivated him and compelled him. Third, sin, as a result, is an idolatry. Because of the power, because of the compulsion, Jacob needs Rachel. Why does he need Rachel? It's because when Jacob looks at Rachel, it's more than just a wife. It's more than just a spouse. It's more than just a companion or a partner. Rachel is the cure for Jacob's life. Now think about it. The encounter with God, just one chapter prior, God came down. There was a stairway to heaven, right? God comes down and speaks into Jacob's life, comforts Jacob, but that's insufficient for Jacob. Jacob's here. He's thinking, my life is a mess I mean, I've lost my father, I've lost my brother, and my mother. My brother wants to kill me. I have no home. I have no money. I have nothing that I can call my own. Ah, but there's Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. Rachel is stunning. If Rachel can become my wife, finally there's one thing that is pure in my life that I've actually earned fair and square. Finally, there's one thing. Everything else is a mess because of what I've done, but finally there's one thing that I've got that I've earned on my own that I've worked for honestly. Rachel is the cure. Rachel's the cure for my life. I've earned this. If I can have Rachel, I have something that will cure my emptiness, something that will cure my desperation, my longing, my loneliness. I have worth. That was Rachel. For Jacob, having Rachel, it's going to fix his life. In other words, Rachel can save him. Rachel is a savior. And whenever you have something apart from God that you look to to fix you, that thing is an idol. That's how we define idol here. How else are you going to get rid of the emptiness? How else are you going to get over the momentary, momentary realities of your failure or your unattractiveness when you feel rejected or disqualified in life, if I can have that love, if I can have somebody that I can be in a relationship with, if I can find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, that one person who will say, I love you because I just love you, then I will be redeemed. That will redeem me. That will renew me. It's an idolatry. The fourth thing this teaches us is that sin is a deafness. Laban Laban, the uncle, he smells blood. There's this desperation that he senses in Jacob, and he knows he's a shrewd businessman. He knows what to do when, there's, when someone's desperate in front of him and has something that he, wants something that he has. Here's a guy who, who's, gonna, who's willing to do anything, whatever. And so, really, if you think about it, he doesn't even answer. When Jacob says, I'm willing to work seven years 
for you, for Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban doesn't really answer. Laban, Laban never says, deal, okay. He never really answers Jacob's question. He never says, yes, I agree to this. Jacob assumes. Why? He's so rabid. He's so addicted. He's so powerless. He just wants and wants and wants. So lots of assumptions are being made. He's so taken. And when those seven years are up, there's this wedding week. And with the wedding week, there's a ceremony. And then there's a feast. And there's lots of drinking. And, and the entire time, the bride is veiled. That was the custom. The bride would be veiled. And finally, they're alone, and it's dark, and they sleep together. He's probably inebriated. And Jacob, he wakes up the next morning, and verse 25, it's Leah. Behold, it's Leah. Notice what he says in verse 25. He goes to Laban, and he says, What is this you have done? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? What's Laban's response? It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder. Now, this is really good. I'm going to say it another way. Laban is saying this. He's saying, Jacob, I don't know about your world, but in my world, we don't put the younger before the older. Ouch. That just cuts Jacob to the heart. Here's what sin does. It makes us deaf. Sin makes us deaf. And now Jacob's really mute. He can't even respond. He doesn't respond. Sin makes us stop hearing other people in our lives. Sin makes us only hear what we want in our lives. That's why Jacob, he doesn't make the contract more explicit. That's why he doesn't pay attention to the warning signs. I mean, seven years he's working, you'd think there'd be some warning signs. When Jacob said, you've deceived me, and he hears Laban's response, you notice he doesn't take this to court. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue it out. Why? Because it clicked in him, and it cuts him to the heart. Jacob got played the exact same way that he played his own father. Uh, the word deceived here, in fact, the word deceived, you know, why have you deceived me? The word deceived here, it's the same word that the father used, his father Isaac used. When he realized what had happened, when Jacob stole the blessing, his father uses the same word. There, Robert Alter, he's a liberal professor from the uh, University of Berkeley in California, uh, in Berkeley, uh, in California. And uh, he's, uh, he's really the foremost authority in the ancient Hebrew. And, and he quotes an old story. He's a very liberal professor, but he's uh, got a great understanding of the ancient Hebrew. And here he quotes this old story from the Hebrew Midrash. And uh, he, basically he says, there's this rabbi who imagines this episode and kind of writes about it in history. And this is what he says. Uh, Jacob must have said, why, he turns to Leah, again, this is all imaginary. He turns to Leah and he says, Why did you deceive me, O daughter of the deceiver? Didn't I call out Rachel in the night and you answered me? She says in response, There is never a bad barber who doesn't have disciples. Isn't this how your father cried out Esau and you answered him? Our sin makes everyone else a deceiver. Our sin makes everyone else unjust and everyone else cruel and everyone else harsh, but not us. We see everybody else one-dimensionally, but we're the only ones living in 3D. In sin, you don't see the consequences. You don't see the warning signs. Rather, you don't hear it at all. You ignore all of them because you want what you want, because it's an idol, because you're compelled, because sin has a power. And when the bottom falls out, there's this defensiveness you still don't hear. There's a defensiveness, there's a self-pity that's left. That's sin.
Sin is also a brokenness. Jacob, if you think about it, he's working. He's a shepherd in Laban's land. Finally, life is starting to shape up. And when he meets Rachel and he's working for Rachel year after year, the years go by, he's saying, I finally, I'm, I'm going to arrive. I'm finally going to make it. But verse 25, behold, when morning came, there was Leah. Derek Kidner, he's my favorite commentator in the book of Genesis. He says this, he says, this moment is a miniature of man's disillusion experienced from Eden onwards. What does that mean? It's what Tim Keller calls cosmic disappointment. It means no matter where you place your hope, whether it's a spouse or in your career or in your reputation or in your wealth, in the morning when you wake up, there will always be Leah. And you would have paid a huge price for Leah. Cosmic disappointment. It begins with a promise. A promise that says, yes, I need to work, and I need to work, and I will, I'm willing to work because I want that. What is the promise? It's a sense of worth. Whatever it is that we're hooked in, whatever it is that we're addicted to, whatever it is that compels us, whatever power has a hold over us, it promises something, and we're willing to work. The Bible says we're constantly elevating things to a cosmic level, and Tim Keller, he says this, he says, you think you're getting Rachel. All the while you're working and working and working. You're thinking, you think you're getting Rachel. But there's always Leah in the morning. Look at Leah. She's thinking, if I can find that one man who's going to love me, if I can become a mother of his children, then I will be somebody. Then I will be redeemed. But in verses 28 to 30, there's this devastating truth. Leah's just devastated. Why? Because Jacob realizes it's Leah. And so he moves on. He's willing to work another seven years for Rachel, marries her within the next week after the wedding week is over. He has Rachel, and it says explicitly, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Look at the devastation that Leah experiences here. Cosmic disappointment. You see it in what she names her sons. Each son is given a Hebrew name that gives us a picture, just a slight glimpse of Leah's hopes and her life and her devastation, the disappointment. Verse 31 to 32, Reuben. I'm seen. Actually, it's look, a son. That's the Hebrew. I'm seen. Now I will be visible. Now I will be somebody. In verse 33, there's Simeon. I'm heard. The Lord has heard that I'm not loved. All my life I've been ignored. Now the Lord has heard. Maybe my husband will love me now. Verse 34, Levi. I'm attached. The actual Hebrew, more literally, it's my husband will now join me. My husband will now join me and attach himself to me. Each time there's a son, each time there's brokenness, cosmic disappointment. In the morning, there will always be Leah. Jacob is broken. Jacob's paid a price. He's carrying this burden. Leah is broken. Leah's paid a price. She's carrying these burdens. It's a picture of us. That's our lives. It's a picture of our lives. I'm going to kind of stop here. I mean, there's so many more lessons. I mean, Jacob, 14 years of labor, the best years of his life. What does that tell you about sin? Sin is slavery. Leah, her son's names, right? Now I'm seen. Now I'm heard. Now I'm attached. What's sin? Sin is a promise and a lie. Look at, the, look at our views on love and marriage and children and happiness and having a happy home. Sin is a distortion. It's all bad news. Sin is bad news. That's the bad news about sin in this text. But there's good news. We're going to close with the good news. First, there are lessons, uh, first, uh, lessons on grace. God works through broken situations. If you look at this passage, if you look at a passage like this, 
what do you see here? I'm going to give you a, a very brief overview. You see polygamy. You see misogyny. You see conspiracy. I mean, it's offensive and it's awful. Just absolutely offensive and awful. If you look at passages like this, and you've got to ask yourself, I mean, why are these passages in the Bible? If I want to market the church, you don't want passages like this in the Bible to preach from. But the reason why they're in the Bible, number one, is because they happened. It's true. But more importantly, look at what God is teaching us. Throughout the Bible, every place you see slavery, every place you see polygamy, adultery, misogyny, conspiracy, there's not a single person in any of those passages that's ever happy. You just see misery. Everyone here, look at this text, everyone is miserable. Just because these institutions exist in the Bible doesn't mean that God condones these institutions. But God is not absent. In fact, God is very present. He's active and he's working. So you've got to trust him. There are people in this room right now who are thinking, you know, in my, if I look at my life right now, if I take a snapshot of my life right now, I don't see how any good can come from what's going on in my life. I just don't see it. You've got to trust him. Because you're wrong. This passage shows you you're wrong. You're short-sighted. God's grace works best through broken situations. He works through blessings. He works through the Rachels of our lives, but he works best through the Leahs in our lives. If he's, think about this. If he's active in the life of Jacob and Leah, he can be active in your life. God works through broken situations. Next, God works through broken cultures. Now, it's easy for us to say, look how primitive this culture is. I mean, we've gotten beyond this, right? I mean, this is a modern culture today, right? We're liberated from all these things, right? We don't really care about our looks, right? We don't really care about our figure, right? We don't care about our weight, right? I mean, people don't screw each other over for money anymore, right? We don't lie anymore, do we? We don't manipulate people anymore, do we? Meanwhile, we're discussing these things over lunch, and we only order salad because we're unacceptable. we find our weight to be unacceptable, right? Do you get it? The Bible is so relevant today because the heart, our heart, our nature, our problems, our insecurities, our brokenness, they really haven't changed. Through centuries and centuries of scripture and biblical history, our hearts haven't changed. Look at Leah in her culture. In her culture, women had no power. They had no strength or standing. And because of her looks, she's completely disregarded. She's ignored. She's just lower, even lower. But something happens between that third and fourth son. An amazing thing happens. I mean, look at the first three sons. I'm seen, now I'm seen, but then she's not seen. Now I'm heard, but then she's not heard. Now my husband will join me, but then he doesn't attach to her. He loves Rachel more. And then the fourth son, literally the text says, now I will praise the Lord. The first three sons, representative of Leah's weakness, her longing, her emptiness, her loneliness, her desperation. But by the time you get to the fourth son, she's praising. I mean, what do you, how do you make sense of that? Leah is weak, but then she became strong. Leah was enslaved, but somehow she became free. Free from what her culture says about her. Free from what her family says about her all through her life, even as Laban's daughter. Free from what her culture says about her. Free from the worthlessness of what her culture says about women in her day. I mean, if you think about it, in a way, Leah becomes a prototypical feminist, a prototypical, a prototypical picture of feminine beauty. 
She doesn't, what does that teach us? It means on one hand, you can't idolize your specific culture. Whatever culture you're in, you don't idolize that culture because all cultures are broken, all cultures are flawed. But on the other hand, you can't demonize them either. God is working through it. God is working through your culture, your societal sins, your cultural sins. You may feel trapped in them, but God, in the gospel, by grace alone, can transcend and help you transcend your culture and work through those broken cultures to work in your life and bring redemption in your life. Third thing this teaches us is that God works, so God works in broken, through broken situations. God works through broken cultures. God works in broken people. There's somebody in this room right now that still can't stand the bigamy and the misogyny, the sex, the crassness. I'm going to tell you why. It's because you still think that the Bible is about role models, and it's not. The Bible is not about role models. The Bible is not about good people who get God and they become great people. The Bible is not about that. The Bible is actually about people who resist God, run from God, hide from God, don't deserve God's presence in their lives, don't seek God's, prayer, uh, God's presence in their lives. Where in this passage do you see Jacob ever praying? Where do you see in this passage Laban praying? God's grace comes to people who don't deserve it, don't seek it, don't even appreciate it when they encounter it, and yet by God's sheer grace alone, they're saved. Jacob is a cheater, he's a thief, he's a polygamist, he's a misogynist, he's definitely no role model, and yet he's called, he's chosen, he's loved. That's amazing. That's remarkable. That gives us hope, right? Leah is unattractive. She's undesirable all her life. She's sad. She's ignored. She's neglected. But she's seen by God. She's heard by God. God is attracted to Leah. God sees Leah. Scripture is filled with stories of sinful people. I mean, that's just, you see this. Scripture is filled with stories of sinful, idolatrous, broken people, but God never casts these people out. In fact, God shapes them. God transforms them. Look at Jacob. It's through his disappointments what's happening. God's working in broken people. Through his disappointments, God starts to humble him. God cuts to the heart through Laban's words. His, his adversary, so to speak, in this passage, the antagonist in this story speaks into him. And it cuts him to the heart. It starts to humble him. Fourth, God works through broken people. Over and over you see flawed, weak people with lots of baggage. God uses Laban and his deceitfulness to humble Jacob. Why why doesn't Jacob fight Laban? If you think about it, it's because Jacob saw himself. He's the deceiver. In fact, his name means deceiver. God used Leah to humble Jacob. Why not call foul play? Why not take this to court? He saw himself. We all want God to use Rachel's in our lives to bless us. We want God to use the blessings, the beautiful things, the trophies to increase our joy and increase our options and increase our potential in life. But God often uses the Labans in our lives. God often uses the layers in our lives, the disappointments in our lives. Right now, there's a Laban in your life. 
I don't know who it is, but right now everyone here has a Laban in their life. And it's through the disappointments that come from that, it's going to lead you to see your pride and your lies and your selfishness and your narcissistic tendencies. That's what it does. Over the years as a pastor, when I talk to people, uh, people tell, come to me and they'll say, you know, I don't want to, I hate church. I don't want everyone to go back to church. The church is full of hypocrites. The church, the, the church is full of liars. I'm never going back. Now think about it. You have to thank God that the church is full of hypocrites. You know why? Because if the church was full of perfect people, you'd never walk into a church. You'd feel too inadequate. You, the church is for Jacobs. The church, they say the church is not a museum of saints but a hospital for sinners. Thank God the church church is filled with hypocrites. You know why? Thank God because they're the ones that God needs to heal. They're the ones that God needs to, to redeem and renew. They're the ones that need it. We are the ones. This is about us. If it's full of perfect people, you'd never come. We're too afraid to come. The church is full of liars and thieves and deviants, but God's sheer grace, he encounters us. That's grace. So we said that God works through broken situations. God works through broken cultures. God works in broken people. God works through broken people. God is attracted to Leah's. God is attracted, attracted to broken people. You have to let that heal your ego. What heals Leah? In verse 35, she names her last son Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. Now I will praise the Lord. The word Lord here is a very specific word. In the ancient times, if you called on God, you referred to him as Adonai or Elohim. They're very gener- almost generic words for God. You know, kind of when we pray, we say God. We just kind of say that. But the word Judah is derived from the word Yahweh. Right? That's the word Lord. It's usually spelled in capital letters, all caps in your Bible. Very specific word to people that God has chosen to demonstrate his love and his grace. You know what that means? Leah. She says, now I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. That means she's one of those specific people. She knew. Leah must have, she, she must have trusted God's promise. She must have saw Jacob and trusted the promise that Jacob has. The blessing that Jacob stole, but it's his. She must have trusted it. And because God saw, because she saw that God was attracted to Jacob, she must have realized God is attracted to her. Because she's broken, and she's ugly, and she's ignored, and she must have realized that she is the bearer. You know why? Because she can have children. She must have realized that she is the bearer of the seed. If Jacob has the seed, she must be the bearer of the seed of redemption. And somehow, somewhere, she personalized this story of the gospel into her life. She realized, the Lord really has seen me. The Lord really has heard me. The Lord really has attached himself to me. Leah, she's looking to her spouse, and she's looking to her children for fulfillment. But once she stopped doing that, once she stopped looking to her spouse, once she stopped looking to her children to fulfill her, and she saw the Lord, she got it. Leah got it. Somehow she got it. She's the bearer of redemption. God will use her to redeem, to bring about the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world will come through her. That means she, Leah becomes one of Jesus' four mothers. There's her worth. Through Judah, Leah becomes a foremother of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Judah is the seed. Rachel, you know, Rachel later has children. But Judah becomes the line of kings. 
And so Leah got it. She realized that grace comes to broken people, and grace comes through broken people, which means it's going to come to her. She realized it. She got it. And it's going to go through her. King David was born in the line of Judah. You know who King David was before he was king? He was the forgotten son. He was the ignored son. And Jesus Christ was born through the line of Judah. He was the forsaken son. Leah saw it. Stop working to manipulate other people to feel more attractive, to feel more acceptable to you or to them. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus Christ and you come to him broken and you'll know and you'll experience that God is attracted to you. Stop trying to make yourself, you know what we do? Stop, everyone here has makeup on. It's not just the women who have makeup on. Everyone here has makeup on. We, we use our resumes as our makeup, as our ornaments. Everyone here has got jewelry on. It's not just the physical jewelry. Everyone here has something that they're putting on to make themselves become more attractive and acceptable to other people. Stop, you're manipulating us. You're manipulating one another. Stop manipulating one another to make each other feel more attractive. You go to Jesus broken. You go to Jesus attractive, unattractive, and God himself will come down. Lastly, final point, God works through the layers of the world. God chose to use the weak, the unattractive, the ignored, the ignored person to bring salvation to the world. Leah's story is really a precursor to the ultimate story of salvation. How did Leah get it? I mean, that's an amazing thing if you think about it in her day. She really is the prototypical feminist. How did she get it? At the time, Jacob didn't get it. Laban, the prefigures, the men didn't get it, but it's the woman who gets it. Think about it. God chose Jacob the younger instead of the older. God chose Leah, the unacceptable, the outcast. Centuries later, Jesus Christ is born from the line of Judah. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, it's, it's written in your call to worship. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing in appearance that we should desire him. In other words, what is this text saying? Jesus Christ had the pedigree. He was God's only son. But he sacrificed his status. He sacrificed his beauty. He sacrificed his kingliness. He sacrificed his titles. He sacrificed his wealth. And when he came down, he, sacri- he came down to sacrifice his sonship. What does that mean? Although Jesus Christ is the most perfect, most beautiful person that ever walked the earth, he's really the true Rachel. He was ignored. He was overlooked, just like Leah, just like David. He was ignored. He was overlooked. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means is now I'm really not seen. Now I'm really not heard. I'm crying out, and now the Lord, he has departed from me. He has forsaken me. He is no longer attached to me. The Trinity has been torn apart on the cross. I'm truly overlooked. I'm truly ignored. I'm truly forsaken. I'm truly cast out. In other words, Jesus Christ on the cross experienced the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate emptiness, the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate desperation, and as a result, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm now experiencing the ultimate desperation and longing for my center, for my sense of worth. God, the love of the Father, God. And as a result, I've become ugly in sin. When God departed from him, he suffered the ultimate 
cosmic disappointment, and he did it for you. He did it for us. He did it for me. That's the cure. That's the cure for that deep-rooted ugliness, the deep-rooted ugliness of sin in our lives. All of us here, we're spiritual layers. Every one of us. Whether you're attractive or unattractive, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, every one of us has the ugliness of sin, and we are reeking of that ugliness. We, it is, we, are, we are emulating and embodying that ugliness every day, every morning, moment by moment. But look to Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the true Rachel, became the ultimate Leah for you so that we who are the Leahs of the world can become Rachels in the eyes of God. Rachel, God is attracted to you. That's how you know. When you look to the cross, that's what you see. God is attracted to us. There's your promise. There's your worth. There's the love that you need. That's why we know we are seen and we are heard and God is attracted and attached to you. Will you plunge yourself into the beauty of Jesus Christ? Plunge yourself into the beauty of his amazing grace and his amazing work for us on the cross and you will find the true love that you needed for all time, for all time, for all time. Don't work. Don't labor. Don't commit to that labor. The enslaving labor for earthly beauty and for earthly love and those promises of love that only God can give. First of all, not a single person in this room can provide it. Not your pastor, not your leaders, not your spouse, nor your children. They are too broken. We are too broken to give you that fulfilling love that you need. Every one of us are Leahs. So we can't give you the beauty because we're Leahs too. Look to Christ. Look to Christ the most perfect Rachel, the greater Rachel. And he's working on the cross, and he's laboring on the cross for you to earn you as his Rachel. That's beauty. That's amazing. Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the work of Christ. That's the key to our healing. That's the key to renewal. Come to the table. Let's let the, when we take of the table today, let's let every morsel be food for our souls. Let it be healing for our souls. You gotta take in the beauty of Christ because you're gonna behold the beauty of Christ. You're gonna behold Rachel. Take it in. And there you can experience renewing a covenant with the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That is his covenant with you. Experience that again as you come to him in faith because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.